0: Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of our podcast, Interfacing Language. My name is Frederick, and with me are Iwona and Omar. Our today's guest is Professor Malka Rapopatova from Hebrew University, Jerusalem. Dear Malka Rapopatova, thank you very much for being here with us today.
1: My pleasure. Um, so we have prepared a set of questions, um, mainly referring uh, to more recent papers, I believe, and I'll just start right away with a more general question, which is, um, yeah, I'll, it has a bit of a setup. So a central term for the typology of motion events is complex motion event description. And could you elaborate on the conceptual and linguistic components of such event descriptions? That's one part of the question. And the second part is, could you in this context
2: quickly illustrate the difference
1: between S and V frame languages?
2: Okay, sure. So uh, first of all, it's very important to um, stress that when we're looking at the contrast between the S and V languages, um, we're looking not just at motion events, but specifically at directed motion events. Okay, and these are motion events which minimally consist of or describe a theme and the translation of that theme along a path in a particular direction, right? And the conceptual components, the minimal conceptual components which we need in order to express such a directed motion event are the theme, right? Um, and then we have a path of a particular sort because it's important to realize that there are different ty- kinds of paths and paths can be integrated into event structures in many different ways. So we want a path which actually expresses right, the direction of the translation of a theme across that path. And that will consist of, that path will consist of something expressing direction and a reference object, which um, helps us uh, uh, form the path. Now, if we want to add to these minimal uh, conceptual uh, constituents also something which describes a manner, then we get, almost by convention, right, we call this a complex motion event description. Um, and the manner can describe the manner of movement of the theme, or sometimes less frequently, the manner of some cause which causes, you know, the manner of action, right, of some cause which causes the motion of the theme. Okay, so those are the conceptual uh, constituents of complex motion event uh, description. And um, then when we look at how languages express such. Uh, event descriptions syntactically, we have to look at how these components are lexicalized across languages, and we find particularly two patterns. So for direction, what we find is that direction can be encoded either in a P or a P-like element like a case, or in a verb. And manner typically has two types of options. Either it can be expressed in a verb, or it can be expressed in all sorts of adverbial type constituents. Now, the distinction between the two types of languages has to do with, in essence, how much can be packaged into the lowest part of the syntactic tree, right? Basically, that that part of the syntactic tree which gives you the core event, including just complements, without adjunct. S-framed languages, if you look at the options for encoding manner and direction, they make use of all the combinatorial properties. So you can have manner expressed in the verb and direction expressed in the P type element. You can have direction expressed in the verb and the manner in an interverbial type element. Okay, so those are the S-frame languages and they're actually relatively flexible in that regard. The V-framed languages have a restriction, so they allow direction to be expressed in the verb and the manner in some kind of an verbal element, but what they have in a very restricted way, or they don't have it at all, is having the manner encoded in the verb and the direction encoded outside the verb in what Tommy calls a satellite, right? Um, and so just to give you, you know, a, an idea, if we take something like you know, the, the man stole out of the room, there we have the manner expressed in the verb, right, and the path, right, that the theme traverses is expressed in a satellite. Uh, English also allows to put the same manner in an adverb, so we can say the man went out of the room stealthily, right? Um, Now you can ask if English has both these options, when will one use one option and when will, one use, when will one use the other option? And that probably has to do more with discourse and information structure considerations, not syntactic considerations. Uh, another example would be uh, limp. So uh, I limped out of the room or I went out of the room limping. Okay? And you know, romance languages, which are an example of B-frame languages, they only have the second option. Right? So went out of the room stealthily or limped. So, I think I covered all <laughs> everything that you asked in that
0: question. So, building up on that, um, the main difference seems to be the availability of a functional lexicon which encodes directed motion in satellites. Because, well, both S and v framed languages feature a verbal lexicon which includes, at least to a certain degree, both manner and direction verbs. However, various scholars such as, for example, Acedo-Mateyan and Mathieu propose that this is not merely a distinction between the absence or presence of a rich functional lexicon, but whether due to the structure of a certain compounding process, which is available to some languages but not to others. What is the nature of this structure and what other characteristics would we expect to correlate with the availability or unavailability of this characteristic?
2: Yeah, um, well, I actually agree with uh, with their not necessarily the specifics of their analysis, but that 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 uh, general position on the difference between the two types of languages. And once again, it's also important to realize that you know when we talk about S-frame languages and V-frame languages, it's kind of an idealization, because when we look at all the options that languages have um, for expressing different types of directed motion, we we get a much more complex picture. But we're we're gonna you know we're going to take a step back and and make reference to the idealized situation but we should realize that we are talking about an idealized situation which is okay so one reason to assume that their position is correct right and it doesn't just have to do with the lexical inventory available to the language is if we look actually outside of motion events for a minute right and look at a different type of event of change, which uh, shows typically the same properties in the two types of languages, right? So if we look at change of state events, we find that if we want to have, to express a change of state and a manner, right? So languages like English for an S-frame language, right? We can say something like, you know, I wiped the table clean, or I cleaned the table while, while wiping it, but V-framed languages, Romance languages, don't have the option of putting the manner in the verb and the result, right, in an AP. Now, and so you can't, you don't have the carlet, the word-by-word carlet of I wipe the table clean in French or in any of the other Romance languages. And, you know, here it doesn't have anything to do, right, with the functional vocabulary or the explicit functional vocabulary, because of course, these languages do have APs, right? they do have APs, but you just can't put them together. So the way I look at it, and I think this is the way Aserah Matean and Mattel look at it as well, is in the following way. Well, let's, let's, start, let's start for a minute from, um, from resultatives, right? AP resultatives, right? So APs don't express a change in a property, they express the property, right? right? And, you know, an AP like clean just express a property, right? If it's an AP, right? If it's a verb like in English, right? It can express a change in the value of that property, but the AP on its own only expresses the property. So if you take a manner verb and you take an AP, right? What, and put them together, what tells you that the manner led to not just the state, but a change in the degree to which that state held. Um, and so there has to be something else, right, which is going to give us the element of change. Right. Now, one of the things, and, you know, we, we had this question about whether to talk about manners result complementarity, but, you know, um, whether or not you assume that manners result complementarity, this manner verbs typically, and this is a position that I would take Actually, again, you know, the strong stance saying that manner verbs do not at the same time express or select right, uh, a change. Right? They don't select a change as one of their complements because they express manner. Right? So, if you want to say, I wipe the table clean, you need something else which is going to select right, the predicate clean because we do know that that predicate appears very low in the tree. Right? So it appears in the position of a selected element. Now, if we go back to, to, to motion verbs, the, the situation is a little bit more complex, but um, I would, I mean, one of the things that we know about directional phrases right, is that you know, their distribution is much more restricted than location phrases. And I, once again, I stress directional phrases, not path phrases, because path phrases have, you know, if you have a complete path, they have a much freer distribution, but directional phrases have a much more limited distribution. They don't appear as adjuncts. For example, you can say, you know, the the table on the uh, on the porch, but you can't say the table to the porch, right? And and you know, lots of other examples of that sort. So if we assume that a directional phrase has to be selected, especially if it's going to appear low down in the tree, um, then once again, a manner verb. And you know you could take an extreme position or a less extreme position. I would take the extreme position that um, a manner verb never selects a directional phrase. Now, if that's the case, then you need something else which will combine right with the manner verb in order to select a directional phrase. Now, if you take a look, I mean, yeah, I'm not a very big typologist, right? That's not my that's not my strength. But if if you do take a look at languages of the world, what you typically find, right, is that when a manner of motion verb takes a directional phrase, there's some morphology, right, which indicates that there's been some augmentation of the argument structure, right, you know, different languages do it different ways, right, so, you know, some languages actually make you form a compound verb or use a serial verb construction or some kind of a prefix or some kind of applied affix. there are lots of ways depending here, really depending on the lexical inventory of the language, but um, so, so the language has to have some kind of process which allows you to augment the basic, um, uh, the basic argument structure which minimally expresses right, the argument structure of the manner verb. Right? You assume that you know, the manner verb has to express its own argument structure. Without help, it can't express anything else. Once you allow that, if you have, if the language has that ability to augment the argument structure, then it then allows not just augmenting by adding APs and, you know, directional PPs, but it might allow all sorts of other things. So, for example, right, the Germanic languages, but not only the Germanic languages, allow uh, non-selected uh, resultative uh, resultative phrases uh, sorry resultative phrases predicated of non selected objects um, and then all sorts of argument alternations which can right be analyzed as taking a main verb and augmenting it with um, uh, with an aug- and augmenting the argument structure bringing in a result which um, is not selected by the head
0: Talking more specifically about the article you wrote on the ongoing shift in Hebrew, the argument from the aforementioned scholars was based on the shift from Latin to Romans, which made a shift from satellite to verb-framed typology of directed motion events, while the shift from Biblical Hebrew to modern Hebrew is argued to mirror this development. Could you elaborate on the importance of the reverse direction and shift and the underlying hypothesis that you analyze, this?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the nice things about the work of uh, C. Matean and, and, and Matteo is, you know, they carefully document the change from Latin to the Romance languages. And actually, other people have, have elaborated on their work. And, and you know, once again, you know, these are changes that have taken place, first of all, for a lot of languages, right, because there are a lot of descendant languages from, from Latin. And over you know long periods of time, what's very nice is that all of these languages have been documented, and so one can take a very careful look at how these changes have, have taken place over and, you know, over over the centuries. And you know, this is a lot of difficult work, you know, analyzing corpora. But once again, if you step back and try to take a look at the large picture, you know, and 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 abstract away from you know the myriad of details, um, what what they show is that If you make the the assumption that there's one underlying process which differentiates the two types of languages, you make a prediction about the cluster of properties which will change over time, right? Because, you know, sort of, if you say that synchronically, right, there's a cluster of properties which S-frame languages have and V-frame languages lack, right, then if a S-frame language it develops into a V-frame language. One would expect that entire cluster of constructions to to get lost, and and that's what they claim to be true. Now, once again, I'm not a Romance scholar. I'll assume that what they're saying is correct. Now, the opportunity that we have when we look at a language which is going in the di- in the opposite direction is to see whether the same thing happens, right? Whether when we go from Biblical Hebrew. Which should lack all of the S frame structures, right? And if we're moving towards an S frame profile, then we would expect the range of constructions to emerge. Now, of course, all of this has has to be has to be modified a little bit because once again, you know, the languages are very, very complex. So you might not have every single structure because that depends on all sorts of things having to do with lexical inventory. But in general, right, one would expect. That you know, it's not just that you get manner of motion verbs with directional PPs, right? But you get a whole range of other argument structure augmenting properties, and that's what I tried to show in the case of Hebrew. Right? The case of Hebrew is actually a lot more complex, and maybe you know, in one of the next questions, I'll be able to elaborate on that. But but one of the things that I tried to show in in in, in the article is that you know, not only is it the case that we now have rather free combination of manner of motion verbs with, and not only manner of motion verbs, by the way, outside of manner of motion verbs, we also get directional elements, you know, being added to a whole range of uh, manner verbs. But uh, more recently in the past number of decades, we're having uh, non-selected resultatives, right? Which is something which, you know, Hebrew never, ever, ever had, right? Now, so I should say though that he was still does not have AP results and it you know, and if you add an AP result to a manner verb, it sounds terrible. Like it's it, it's not even beginning to be okay, you know. And one has to come up with a theory of why that is. I don't have one right now.
1: Um, do you think it's possible to diagnose if a language is currently changing from B to S or the other way around?
2: <sighs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know. I, I, should say, I should say one other thing, which I didn't say in, uh, in, in the previous question, um, which is something which um, I, I realized, I, I sort of, it, it, it dawned on me just recently. There seems to have been, there seems to have been a stage in Hebrew earlier in the past century where directional phrases were freely added to a whole range of manner verbs, but there were no result phrases predicated of non-selected objects. So you didn't get any fake reflexives or non-selected objects with results. And interestingly enough, Michelle troberg from the University of Toronto has been looking more carefully right, at the development of uh, modern French from Latin, and she's been looking at medieval French, and she claims, right, that there was just such a stage, right, in, um, in in medieval French, right? Where you had directional phrases with a whole range of manner verbs, but you did not have unselected objects. And so, you know, that's really nice because it's showing that, you know, both languages, both languages, um, uh, which the trajectory, right? Of of both languages going in a different direction, went through the same kind of um, intermediate stage. You know, and so, you know, who knows if you find such an intermediate stage, right, where you get a wider range of manner of motion verbs appearing with directional PPs,
3: that might be one indication. So my question is related to the same shift. You consider biblical Hebrew as a V-framed language since the items which can express direction have a basic state in use and receive a directional interpretation when they are together with the verbs which encode direction. In other words, expression of direction is encoded in the verb. Based on the Biblical Hebrew data, could you explain the pattern typical of v languages?
2: I mean, I know Biblical Hebrew very well, right? Um, I'm well-versed in Biblical Hebrew, but I'm not a Biblical Hebrew scholar, okay? I'm not a philologist, okay? And as far as I know, I'm the first one to offer this. <laughs> to offer this, um, this hypothesis, um, that elements which people have taken to express direction in Hebrew, right, really do basically express uh, location, right. And only in combination with verbs which express direction do they, you know, compositionally, right express direction. I should say, that these elements only express location if the location is more or less subcategorized, right? So you get them with, you know, put something, you know, and then you get the element L, which today only has direction. And, you know, that. And, and in biblical Hebrew, you'll find L there, right? And, and, and there to put something usually, you know, verbs of putting typically take location objects, not, not, not direction objects so, um and I actually have consulted some of my biblical scholar philology uh, uh colleagues, and you know they said, voila, you know uh this looks good <laughs> uh this 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 can explain all sorts of things which we're you know we haven 't really understood up until now um, so then going back to so so once again, this is my hypothesis you know it has yet to be fully accepted by the uh by, by the research community. I hope that eventually it does get accepted by the research community. You I know, mean, all my generative uh, friends who know both Biblical Deeper and modern, they they're all convinced, so <laughs> I take that as. But, but in any event, I don't know that anybody has undertaken a big typological study of the, you know, satellite elements available to, Uh, V-framed languages, right? In other words, is it the case that these languages typically only have you know selected location phrases and not directional phrases. They clearly have directional phrases, right? Because you can have paths in all sorts of ways But we're talking about right direction of this particular sort Right, and so I don't know that anybody has undertaken a large typological study of this certainly, right if the language expresses direction in the verb, and has a rich verbal vocabulary for expressing direction, you know, there aren't all that many directions that one can express, right, it's a a much, it's a much leaner conceptual category than manner, right, there are lots and lots of manners conceptually, a lot fewer directions conceptually, but once again, if a language has, you know, can make many different, um, or the, the, the entire range of, options for uh, expressing direction in the verb, it might have less use for a large or a, a very articulated satellite uh, satellite vocabulary. And certainly if it doesn't have the option of combining with manner verbs, then it'll have less use for it. But in any event, minimally, right, in order for a language to have an S-frame structure, right, it has to have p type elements which have, you know, directional meaning on their own, right? And so, you know, the fact that Biblical Hebrew does not have that, it sort of forces it into the corner of being a V-framed language, right?
3: My next, next question is also related to the historical development of Hebrew. Could you tell us what could be the reasons for a reinterpretation of non-motion verbs from biblical Hebrew as motion verbs in modern Hebrew?
2: Well, you know, first of all, I'm not sure how, um, you know, um, how major phenomenon this is. Let me say something about biblical Hebrew, right, as opposed to, say, you know, the shift from Latin to, to romance. There are a number of differences which are very important to bear in mind I and mean, they make the study of this shift from biblical Hebrew to modern Hebrew um, much more challenging. First, the Biblical Hebrew corpus is a lot smaller, right, than the Latin corpus, right? The Biblical Hebrew, right? So, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just a lot smaller. So there's a, a, you know, so what 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 doesn't appear doesn't appear, but we don't know that it didn't exist, right? You know, if you have a very large corpus, you know, there are certain things that you can assume if you don't find it, well, it's likely that it doesn't exist. In Hebrew, that's really less the case, right? And, and, and then the other thing that one needs to realize about, about the shift in Hebrew over the ages, remember biblical Hebrew, I should tell you, I, you, you can't remember this, right? Um, biblical Hebrew stopped being spoken at the latest to at the second century of the common era, right? So it, it hadn't been a spoken language, you know, with native speakers for, for many, 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 many centuries, right? It, you know, the, the revival of spoken Hebrew is from the late 19th century, right? And so given the paucity of these verbs, right? The paucity of these, the, 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 the relevant verbs that I'm talking about, I'll give you an example in just a minute. And 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 the fact that these verbs do not appear very frequently in the biblical corpus. Right? <laughs> they don't appear very frequently in the biblical corpus. So it's sometimes hard to know exactly what the verbs meant in biblical Hebrew, right? Um, and then over the ages, right? People from speaking different languages, right? Read these biblical Hebrew texts and some of these texts are very difficult to understand, right? So in biblical Hebrew, you have narrative texts and there it's usually a lot easier to understand what the meaning of the verbs are, but there's a lot of poetic texts, and the poetic are very difficult to understand, right? And so, you know, people who speak other languages might, you know, read these, read these texts and, you know, think of the closest verb in their own language, and just assume that that was the specific meaning of the verbs in Biblical Hebrew, and so these verbs may have meant different things to different people over the ages and it's very hard for us to know. So the example that I had when I mentioned this in the in the article was um, the verb to swim. Okay so you know today right Israel has a really good uh, you know competitive swimming uh, team so we do a lot of swimming we've got a lot of water around us you know so swim is a very central notion uh, in, in modern Hebrew the 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 verb is based on a, a, a biblical Hebrew verb which does not appear all that often, and in many of its appearances, it means something like to be immersed. Right. Now, you know, even in say in English, you know, you can say I'm swimming in debt, meaning you know I'm drowning in debt. Right. So, you know, th- th- there are certain state of verbs which, when you give them agentive subjects, in lots of languages, right. They end up changing their meaning in a a, a particular way. And so I assume that this is sort of what happened. This is all rather speculative, but I assume that this is what happened, something along these lines.
1: So what we're trying to do now is uh, to shift a bit, let's see if if we can succeed, Um, to talk about the causative alternation. Sure. And yeah, the introductory question could just be, uh, what is the causative alternation? And which classification has been proposed on the
2: basis of this alternation? Okay. Well, you know, actually, the truth of the matter is that it's not one hundred percent clear that there's one unified phenomenon called the causative alternation, right? Um, In in fact, in the literature for 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 decades, we know that there's you know something which is more lexical in nature, right? Um, Which is not fully productive. You can't take any verb and you know form a causative pair but there are some languages which do have, you know, very productive things which, you know, perhaps correspond to our periphrastic causatives, but, you know, because the language happens to express that morphologically, it looks like a causative alternation. But, you know, the kinds of things that I was talking about in my article are pairs of verbs where um, typically there is a transitive variant and an intransitive variant you know, on the borderline, there are length, there are some instances where where both variants are transitive, but let's leave that aside. Okay, so let's look at the core cases where one variant is transitive, the other is intransitive. The uh, intransitive subject corresponds thematically to the transitive object, right? And the um, the transitive variant. Can get a causative paraphrase using the intransitive variant. So, an example would be um, John broke the vase, the vase broke, right? So, the vase, the intransitive subject corresponds to the transitive object, and the transitive verb can get a, uh, um, a paraphrase, John caused the vase to break. When Beth Levine and I started looking at the causative alternation in English, <laughs> the early 1990s, one of the things that we were interested in doing was trying to figure out, you know, for which intransitive verbs does one find a transitive causative variant, right? So, you know, it's easy to see that, you know, most change of state verbs have both a causative and a non-causative uh, variant, not all of them, right, not all of them, at least in English, um, uh, but 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 many of them do. But then there are a lot of intransitive verbs that don't, but, but not only, uh, right, I should say, but not only change of state verbs form these pairs. And then, you know, so there are verbs that, uh, agenta verbs don't form these pairs, right, so you can't say, you know, John sang, I sang John, right, at least in English, right. And what we were trying to do was to come up with, you know, sort of a single unified characterization of the class of verbs which uh, do participate and don't participate. Now I should say, this is something actually rather interesting, gives a a historical perspective to young people like you. (laughs) Uh, when, When we were working in the early 1990s, generative linguists still typically when they were trying to develop theories or um, choose between theories, and they were saying, well, this is the kind of data which will help me choose between theories, what they typically did was, they made up the examples which were necessary to um, either make their theory a little bit more accurate or to choose between two competing theories. Um, At that time, we already were able to make Google searches, um, and, and Beth Levine was actually fantastic in building databases. So we worked with databases more than other people, but nonetheless, you know, there was a lot less available, a lot less available at the time. And the, the art of, you know, using corpora in a really good way was much less developed. And so... When we started looking at change of state verbs, we saw that there were lots of change of state verbs which seemed not to alternate. And here's another you know, thing which is, might be interesting to you. you know, if you want to see whether a verb will alternate, what people typically did was, you took the intransitive variant, and how did you transitivize it? You just stuck in an agent, right? Because the agent right, is sort of, an agent of change of state verb is sort of you know, the conceptual prototype. Now, today we know that the verbs which we called, in, you know, internally caused change of state verbs, typically, typically, right, do not take agent subjects, right, They're typically, so we, you know, formulated sentences with these agentive subjects, right, they sounded bad to our ears and so we came to the conclusion, right, that these verbs do not participate in the alternation, right, And so what we had was we had change of state verbs and non-change of state verbs, you know, in both categories of the alternating and the non-alternating classes. And so we tried to come up with a, um, you know, sort of a unified category between externally caused and internally caused. All the verbs which we thought did not alternate, we call them internally caused, right? And then we had mapping rules, which were supposed to sort of explain this. Well, as time went on, right, I mean, th- there were other people who actually, you know, did really nice corpus work. And I should mention in this regard, Nakun and McFarland, I'm not sure I got the order of the, uh, of the authors correct, but you know, they, they, they did a very large and careful corpus study. And what they showed was it's just not the case that the verbs which we called internally caused change of state verbs do not alternate, they in fact do, right, Uh, but they alternate to, you know, they appear much more frequently in the intransitive variant. Interestingly enough, when they have concrete objects and when they have concrete concrete themes, but when they have abstract themes, they alternate, almost like the other class of verbs, and then when they're concrete, right, they have a different, they typically do not take agentive subjects, and so um, you know, one could still descriptively talk about a class of internally caused change of state verbs. But one of the things that I wanted to do in this in this in this um, paper is that you know, for us, internally caused verbs was not just change of state verbs. There were verbs of omission and all kinds of activity verbs. And the point that I wanted to make was that syntactically, right. The non-change of state verbs show a different range of syntactic properties from the change of state verbs, which were considered internally caused, chief among which are the, their unaccusativity, right? So internal cause change of state verbs are unaccusative. So if they're unaccusative, right, and they do alternate, right, then the fact that they alternate less frequently and they show different uh, properties of argument selection under, uh, under the alternation seems not to be a grammatical fact. It seems to be something that has to do much more with, you know, sort of the interface between grammar and larger conceptual structure. Um, and, and, and that's why the, the main conclusion that I drew there was that um, most of the internally cross-change of state verbs that we classified as internally change of state verbs are just regular change of state verbs, right? And then when we have to come up with some uh, account of when the verbs appear intransitively, when they appear transitively, what kinds of subjects, what kinds of causes can appear in which which ways, and we're gonna have to come up with a theory of this in any event for the class, which we called externally caused change of state verbs, that same theory will account to you know a large degree or maybe one hundred percent to the to the internal caused change of state verbs, and I should say even verbs which are typically classified as externally caused, well you know, depending on the argument that you choose, you know they sometimes they may show the properties of internally caused change of state verbs, so you know change of state verbs is a is a is a class which is um, grammatically relevant, the other class are not change of state verbs. And then we also, I also tried to show that there is a subclass, a small subclass of, you know, verbs of blooming, bloom, blossom, flower, which were considered change of state verbs. And I show that they grammatically do not show the properties of change of state verbs. They actually show the properties of emission verbs. And so, you know, if you look more carefully at the grammatical properties, you get, you come to a, a cleaner analysis.
3: Thank you very much. In the paper "Deconstructing Internal Causation," you revise your previous classification of verbs into two classes published in Levin and Rapport, Hovav, 1995, and claim that the subclass of change of state verbs is different from the other subclasses within the verb within the class of internally caused verbs. Could you please explain to us the motivation behind the original classification and its revision? <sighs>
2: I I, well, I I think I I sort of answered that question in uh, with the previous question so uh, l- let me just repeat right so so syntactically right all change of state verbs except for the ones that don't alternate right and, and you know th- you know languages may vary in this regard so in english verbs of destruction right and killing do not alternate they're change of state verbs and we know that they're change of state verbs for from other ways of, of looking at it. Um, but uh, but they don't alternate, at least in English, right? In other languages they do, but in English they don't. Um, but all the other alternating change of state verbs on their intransitive variant, they are unaccusative, right? They are unaccusative. And this makes them grammatically different from all the other verbs which we called, right? Which we called um, internally caused verbs, including by the way, verbs of blossoming and flowering which appear, you know, to be cross-linguistically actually um, unergative. right? So, so um, it, it seemed to me that, um, you know, if, 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 if the classification of internal causation versus external causation is supposed to be a classification at the interface between conceptual structure and grammatical structure, the fact that one class is you know, comes out unergative or transit and the other class comes out unaccusative, that seems to indicate that, um, you know, that, that this is a wrong classification, right? Now, I should say that my article from 2014, which didn't really deal with the internal cost change of state verbs, but just their regular run of the mill change of state verbs, where I started looking more carefully and, and, and also the, the article that Beth Levine and I wrote in, in 2012, we started looking more carefully at, you know, what licenses, for verbs that in principle do alternate, what licenses the, um, the transitive variant and what licenses the intransitive, what, what contextual factors license the two variants and how can you tell which kinds of causes for the external argument are appropriate for which kind of objects that helped me, right, that, that served as an intermediate step and said, well, if we take that kind of perspective, then when we look at inter- what have been called internally caused change of state verbs, we don't have to say anything else, right, they're change of state verbs, that's why they're unaccusative, and the fact that they alternate in a funny kind of way comes from all sorts of factors.
3: Thank you very much. And my next question is related to the same paper. Could you explain what exactly you assume under the term natural natural course of events and how is it related to the class of internal verbs?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, the truth is I never gave I I didn't give a formal analysis of you know the natural course of events. It's something similar, right, to Dowdy's inertia worlds, right? The idea is that you know, if you if you put a cup on the table, right? And you assume that nothing unexpected happens, right? The cup is not going to break, right? You know, so and, and this is true for many change of state verbs. For some change of state verbs, it depends on the argument that you choose, right? So, you know, if you talk about a shoe, right, you know, if you just leave a shoe without doing anything to it, it's not gonna widen, right? But i don't know perhaps under certain circumstances there are things that widen you know in their in the natural course of events okay so 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 for example hair right if you just leave hair alone it will lengthen right or days days in the natural just the world as we know it days lengthen in the summer and they shorten in the winter right this is just 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 using what we know about the world right and so the verbs which, and it's not a very large class, right? but the verbs which have been called internally caused change of state verbs are verbs which typically describe, they, they typically select you know, things that have um, sort of like natural kind of uh, objects, not artifacts. And, and, and what, they, what they describe are changes which, you know if you just leave the theme alone, and the world continues in the way we know it, that that entity is gonna undergo such a change. So that's what I mean by the natural course of events. Now, so these verbs, which, you know, have a, you know, a sort of a rather narrow selection in their concrete sense, this is why we might call them internally caused change of state verbs, because we don't even have to mention the because cause, the cause is in some sense irrelevant if we know that these things are going to change in the natural course of events, right? The way the world, the world as we know it. But when we use these verbs metaphorically, right? So take erode, soil may erode under very natural circumstances and we don't have to specify why, but if we say, you know, something eroded my confidence, confidence doesn't just naturally under familiar circumstances erode. And so you won't say my confidence eroded, you'll usually specify if there is a change in your confidence such that it eroded, it'll be very relevant to know why it eroded, right? And so that, that's more or less the idea. I hope I made myself clear.
3: Yes, thank you very much. And I think Frederick has a further set of questions related to the same paper.
0: So, abstracting away from the concrete examples of change of state verbs, a central divide in syntactic theory is the debate whether structure is lexical or syntactic. Some parts of these debates seem to be present in event semantics as well. While some authors argue for syntactic decomposition of event structure, the term lexical semantics already suggests some kind of listed approach to event semantics that is not necessarily based on syntactic derivation. What evidence does your work on causation as well as possibly the manner result complementarity but can focus on causation? Um, what evidence does this analysis provide for either position? Is this merely a theory internal debate or can the semantic can be adapted to both of them? Or taking into account your last examples of uh, internal uh, change of state verbs, should we maybe include a third option which is uh, Pragmatic approach to grammar.
2: Well, you, you may uh, people may be somewhat surprised at, at the answer that I'm going to give, um, because you know I, I, Beth Levine and I, our work has t- typically been classified as lexicalist, even though um, in much of our work, you know, certainly, certainly by the end of the 1990s, and, and you know, the, the stuff that we did um, at the beginning of uh, this century we very often made it clear that we're not taking a position. You know, we we formulated event structures and um, because we were much more interested in a finer grained look at um, the semantics of what we today call the root, uh, we didn't really take so much of a position on, on how these event structures are encoded. And we said, you know, what we're saying today can go in either direction. Today, I, I have more to say about this. So, so, so first of all, I mean, if you take a look at event structures that people have formulated, not on a Neo-Davidsonian representation, right? But on the kinds of representations that say, um, that Flavina and I have, uh, have developed and, and other people as well, you know, people before us, you know, Jack and Dolph, Lots of people. Um, so event structure so many properties that are very, 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 very similar to syntax, right? There's a small set of categories, so it's kind of lean. Um, they have hierarchical structure. It has, you know, a small set of functional elements and function argument structure. It has modification. So, you know, it looks like syntax, right? So why don't we just say that it is syntax? especially since, you know, parts of what we put into core event structure don't seem to form natural lexical entries, right? So, you know, very often the combinations of a manner verb and result, especially of the unselected sort, even if the syntax is down there in the lexical part, right, um, you know, it, it's, if you say something like, you know, the dog barked the neighbor awake, right? And that's a, a rather rare kind of combination. It sounds 100% okay to the ears of uh, English speakers. It's kind of hard to imagine that there's a lexical entry called bark awake. So if it looks like syntax and it acts like syntax, you know, Occam's Razor would tell us that it is actually syntax. Okay. And, and, and by the way, You know we know that the divide between listedness and productivity cuts across the lexicon syntax divide right so you know full-blown syntax has to be compositional otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand each other right but there is listedness in syntax right and you know there's listedness in the lexicon but there's also complete productivity and compositionality in things which we call word size elements. And so there's no reason to, ass- so that to me is really the most important difference, right? There's the stuff that's compositional and there's the stuff that's not compositional, right? And the compositional stuff, given that we know the relation between syntax and semantics much better today, right? And, you know, we have function argument application, we, 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 know, how, we know how to build up the compositional, to interpret syntax compositionally. For the semantics, anything that can be given that kind of analysis, I think, should be given that kind of analysis. That being said, syntacticians have a tendency to use syntax to describe everything, right? Um, because that's the language that they know. And so just to give you an example, right? Okay, so there are people who think that causes and agents are in you know, different positions, in the syntactic tree, they may be right. I haven't been convinced of that, right? Or or, or just take the distinction between different kinds of roots for the purposes of, of the positive alternation, right? So syntacticians very often put things which can be and perhaps should be calculated based on articulated lexical representations of the root itself, right? In the syntax. And so, so what, I, what I would plead is that stuff that can be, do, can be done compositionally with the tools that we already have should be done compositionally with structures which look like syntax and probably are syntax. It's fine with me to consider those things syntax. But I think it's very, very, very helpful to look especially at very productive processes, right, very productive processes, and take a look at the roots and see what remains constant, where the root appears in different syntactic environments, take that to be the lexical core of the root, figure out how to represent that semantically and figure out how that interacts with the compositional semantics, and then I think you'll find that a lot of things that people put in the syntax don't need to be in the syntax. They really belong elsewhere. And where is that elsewhere? Sometimes it's in the lexical semantics, sometimes it's in the pragmatics, right? So, you know, so, so my answer is actually rather complex. I think, I think yes, some of what is, has been taken to be lexical should be done in the syntax, but some of the things which people think belong in the syntax, should probably be calculated by looking much more carefully at the lexical semantics of roots.
0: With my last question, I want to take up um, the debate from the uh, linguistic battles last week. I don't know if you heard about I that. Did. There was a discussion between Chilean Ramchand and Target. Yeah, Hage. I heard.
2: I listened. I did listen to it. Yeah.
0: So um, there was one question where Heidi Harley asked Chilean uh, Ramchand whether creation verbs such as build or bake fit in her event or composition approach as result or process. She answered that they are different from result verbs and do not encode the same meaning because no change is asserted, but rather the creation of something. What do you think uh, of this? Should we treat creation verbs differently from change of state verbs, also considering the discussion we had about external and internal causation earlier?
2: Well, actually, this um, question helps me illustrate the point that I just made, bake and build happen to be very different verbs, (laughs) okay, Um, so uh, Beth Levine wrote a paper many, many years ago with um, Sue Atkins, I think it was on bake, if I'm not mistaken, right, so bake actually has, a. I mean, build is a verb of creation, right, because on every single use of build, right, it describes creation, but bake doesn't, you know, you can bake a chicken. And when you bake a chicken, you don't create a chicken, right? When you bake a cake, perhaps you do create a cake, right? Um, And, you know, you can put some, you know, you can say, uh, you know, this is baking in the sun. And really it just, and, and, and whatever is baking in the sun may not even undergo any change of state or creation. It's just being subjected to heat. Right? And then, of course, we know that subjecting certain things to heat leads to changes of state. So bake, if you look at the root of bake, bake may be a creation verb. Right? How should I say? The root may participate in the formation of a creation verb, right? but it on its own is not a verb of creation, nor is carve. Or, you know, lots of verbs that can be used as verbs of creation are not verbs of creation. And you know even a verb like write, right doesn't do, doesn't act like a verb of creation, even though whatever, whenever you write you sort of you know something has to if you look at verbs that really are verbs of creation like build and construct right, and I don't know how many of, there, of those there are, but you know there, there are some they they're very strongly transitive well actually they're actually not. Just construct is, is strong, build is actually less strongly transitive, um, you, you know, what did you, I spent the day building, right, and depending on what the object is, right, and build has a an interesting property that it doesn't specify any particular manner, there are lots and lots and lots of ways that you can build things. And this is something which, um, you know, I've only recently started looking at these verbs, which have, don't have very specified manner, um, specifications, but they, they sort of talk about certain types of events which can be filled in in all sorts of ways. But that's what, you know, build is. And, and they're different from change of state verbs in that they don't undergo the causative alternation, right? These verbs, at least in a language like English, right? Um, which doesn't mark the causative alternation morphologically, and so the causative alternation is is a bit more sugar. These verbs do not act like causative alternation verbs. Um, You don't find them in in, in transitively, and so that already shows that they're not change-of-state verbs. You know, the the short answer is that verbs which are inherently verbs of construction show properties which are different from change-of-state verbs, Okay, so verbs like say build and construct do not alternate. Verbs like write, you know, scribble, they act syntactically like manner verbs. Uh, and then there are verbs which, you know, can, can be used as verbs of creation and or not. And then you need to figure out when, they're, when they act like verbs of creation you know, what kind of properties do they show? And you need to do an awful lot of work in order to to answer that question.
1: We have a closing question. You can choose if you want to answer it or if we just take the last question as a closing question. Um, So this is not to go off topic, but it's still linked to what we talked about in the course of the podcast. So what what sparked me is what does the difference between uh, S and V frame languages or the scale between them, if we say there's, you know, the reality in the languages, mean for the translation of texts, and how does a shift in typology influence our understanding of ancient texts? And I know this is more of a philological question. Oh,
2: those right are two, those are th- those are two separate questions, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, so there actually is a very, very large literature on the typological distinction between S-frame and B-frame languages and translation. Right. So. So Dan Slogan was the one who, who started looking at that along with Ruth Berman, and they have lots and people who followed suit. Um, you know, I'm not a big expert on this, but you know, but like one of the things that they noticed was that, um, you know, um, in, in translating from S-frame languages to V-frame languages, manner uh, descriptions often drop out. And this has all sorts of ramifications for all sorts of things, right? Um, they also showed that, um, if from what I, if I remember correctly, that that um, V-framed languages spend more time, less time actually expressing complex paths, and they, they express settings more often. And this may have to do with the fact that, you know, they don't really have an articulated directional phrase um, system. So there is a lot of literature on that i 'm probably not the best person to get any very original insight onto, and so you know i i don't have very very much to say, but you know in terms of looking at at um, uh, ancient texts, I think what I said previously is 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 very very relevant. a lot of it has to do with the size of the original corpus right um, so so in the case of biblical Hebrew. We do a lot of guesswork. We have to do a lot of guesswork. I mean, we do have translations, right, of biblical Hebrew into languages, you know, like like ancient Greek, like ancient Greek, right, or 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 uh, Syriac, right. And I guess one that's a lot of you know really difficult philological work. And 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 I guess I guess Greek was always a be-framed language as well, and so. Uh, but but it, it's 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 you know even though these biblical texts have been studied and and interpreted nonstop over the ages, right? Typically, the people interpreting were native speakers of languages very often with a different typological profile, right? And so, you know, it it could very well be that they're. Interpretation of the text uh, sometimes influenced by their typological uh, profile, um, uh, yeah. And, and then and then once again, biblical uh, Hebrew was produced over the ages, right? Hebrew never stopped being produced. So even after it stopped being um, a spoken language, texts and you know huge, huge, huge numbers of texts have been produced over the millennia, Um, but these were always texts that were produced by non-native speakers. So, you know, the question of what you can, um, uh, of what kinds of conclusions you can draw from these texts for the continuity of how the language developed is much, much more complex, right? Um, and so, you know, this is something which, you know, we at Hebrew University started actually looking at. It's a, it's a huge task, and it's very, very complicated. It has to do with, you know, language contact, language change, um, and we don't know very much about languages which don't have any native speakers. You know, so how do we characterize the knowledge of people who produce texts in a language which doesn't have any native speakers? Right. So this is a, a very, very complex kind of question which you know there's a community of people now in Israel trying to answer these questions and you know there's a lot that's just left open
1: i'm i'm very happy with the answer Good. um and i think we don't have any more questions And we've Good. learned a lot of things thank you so much for taking the time we also went over
2: the overtime,
1: so i hope that's not a yeah huge that's problem.
2: it's my it's my pleasure it's my pleasure it was it, it was a, a pleasure to be talking to you
1: yeah oh, thank you
0: Thank you very much also from my side for closing off our podcast session and um, what we did earlier in some podcasts would be to, to give you the opportunity to close off um, as the last words. So if you have anything, any message, you are very welcome to do so.
2: Hmm. I actually hadn't thought of it. last words, right? Last words before departing. Um, but but I I think I think what, what I said to your more general question about you know lexical versus syntactic representations is the kind of thing which I think you know <laughs> if I were ever to leave a legacy <laughs> this is the legacy that I would like to leave that that one should really pay very careful attention to the to certain aspects of the lexical semantics of roots, right? So it took me a long time to to, to understand how the distinction between roots and verbs, right? Roots and syntactically constructed verbs can provide insight into the analysis of the semantics of verbs. Um, But having made that distinction, I would spend much less time looking at unpredictable uses, or unpredictable meanings of roots. I know a lot of people spend their time looking at that and looking at locality constraints for specialized meanings. Personally, I don't know whether, you know, I want to broadcast this to the world, but I'm actually rather um, skeptical that there are any syntactic constraints, right, on this specification, you know, locality locality specifications for, for special meanings. But I think, and and it's not that those things aren't interesting, they are interesting and there's possibly a lot that one can learn. And sometimes what seems to be an unpredictable meaning can turn out to be predictable if we look more carefully at the lexical semantics of roots. But what one needs to do is really look at the different appearances of the root and see if one can isolate a constant core of meaning and then a lot becomes much more compositional than people think. And I think that compositionality should be done in the syntax, right? That's, that's the, you know, semantically interpreted syntax is the tool that we have for compositionality. And very often we need a combination of compositionality and un, unpredictability. Um, but, but So, so I, I think that the debate between the lexicon and, the, you know, lexical approaches and syntactic approaches is barking up the wrong tree. We need to be good lexical semanticists and good syntacticians and good semanticists all at the same time. <laughs>